0: Well, two weeks ago, uh, well, last week we had our business meeting, and t- two weeks ago, the last time we considered our second, our study of the Second London Baptist Confession, we looked at the question of canon, particularly the historical development of the canon uh, across the centuries, from the Old Testament and through the Intertestamental period and into the New Testament. And what we learned in that pass in that study is that the the development of canon was not a cut and dry process; that it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't determined by Uh, ecclesiastical decree. It wasn't something the church decided these books and not these. It was something the church recognized over time as they listened to the Spirit and discerned the voice of God in the Scriptures. And that's how they determined that these 66 books, 39 old and 27 new, would be included in the canon of Scripture and be the Word of God. And that though other writings of that time may have value, uh, historical value, even theological value in terms of Representation, representing the commentary and reflection of people who have wrestled with the Scriptures. They do are not authoritative in the same way that the Scriptures are. Um, and so tonight we're going to continue thinking about the authority and the acceptance of the Scriptures as God's Word. Particularly, we're going to be looking at the question of, of scriptural authority. And, and the question of authority is, it may seem to you and me like, oh, this is, uh, this is just something that we agree on. It's something we take for granted. Everybody, believe, everybody here, I think, believes that the Bible is the Word of God, and so therefore it carries His authority. But in our world, that claim is not without its critics, is it? We live in a culture that is very resistant to the idea of scriptural authority that what God says about marriage and about gender and about sexuality are not binding and are not authoritative, that they are uh, um, equipment of the past, that they are historically bound, that they have no relevance for a modern enlightened society, that we are wiser and smarter and more aware of ourselves and of others, and so therefore we don't need the Bible to tell us these things. So the, 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 the battleground of the authority of the Bible is ever much as relevant today as it ever has been. Right? Because we believe that these words that God wrote through His apostles and prophets are still binding for me and you today. And if we believe that, then that has certain uh, ramifications and implications for how you and I live and work and love and behave. Right? So the question of the Scripture's authority is very real and very paramount to our faith and practice even in the 21st century. So we are in um, the Second London Baptist Confession, section 1-4. We'll go ahead and read that paragraph briefly. It's a short paragraph. and We'll read it out loud that way, and then we'll talk through it and what these concepts mean. Um, section 1-4 of the Second London Baptist Confession, if you have that there, reads, The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. The authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. I think it's very interesting that the opening line says that the authority of the Scriptures obligates belief in them. The Word of God, the spoken Word of God, the revealed Word of God carries with it an obligation of obedience. This is a concept you and I understand, right? When our parents, when we're children and our parents tell us, do that or don't do that, right? That is an exercise in authority. And our submission to them as children obligates us to do and behave the way that they have specified. And if we don't, then that comes with consequences, doesn't it? We all have authorities in our lives whose word must be obeyed. We have bosses, right? We have spouses, right? We have... uh, uh, governmental leaders right who whose word comes with an obligation a certain requirement of behavior or practice so this is a concept you and I understand problem is that the Bible is a book out of history was written over 2000 years ago some of it 3000 years ago so why do we believe that a book that was written over 3000 years ago in languages other than our own is still authoritative today 21, 31 centuries after it was actually written. The answer is that even though the the words in this book were coined and written by human authors, they still very much are the word of the living God. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the basis of scriptural authority, you can see this in your handout in point number A, the basis of scriptural authority is the character and being of God. The reason his word is binding is because it it is his word. It belongs to him. It was sourced out of his mind. It is who he is. And so therefore it carries his authority. So there are four aspects of his being, I think, of his character that sustain this idea of the authority of God's word. You can see them there. We'll talk through them. Namely, our God is eternal. Right? He has no beginning and he has no end. We'll look at these verses in just a moment and read through them. But when God spoke in the beginning, he, understood, he knew and understood that you and I would be sitting here some thousand years later thinking about His Word and what it means for us today. He didn't just speak to it, one people living at one specific time because He is an eternal God. He is a timeless God without beginning or end. And so therefore when He speaks, His Word is eternal. It has eternal authority. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born... Before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Psalm 90 is a psalm that was actually written by Moses, perhaps one of the earliest psalms in the entire Psalter. And the, the contrast that's being drawn here is between the eternality or the eternal nature of God and the brevity of human existence. Moses goes on to say in that psalm, what, is, what are the days of man? Seventy, maybe eighty years? And we're talking about a God that is eternal. Eternal. By contrast, the brevity, the vanity, the 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 shortness of our existence is but a wisp in the wind compared to who He is. He is the eternal God, and so therefore His Word is eternal. Revelation one eight: I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty, Alpha and Omega, being the first and last letter of the of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end, the first and the last, alpha and omega, right? And everything in between, right? His being, His existence encompasses all things because He is without beginning and without end. John one one continues, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you're good Bible students. You know that the Word in John 1.1 1, 1 is Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. But isn't it interesting that John, in his reflection on the eternality of the Son, chose to use the concept of a Word. The Word was in the beginning. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Because His Word is eternal, just like He is. And it carries His authority because He is eternal. Not only is He eternal, He is also sovereign. What does the word sovereign mean? He is he is a king. So if you have a, a sovereign that is a ruler of a particular national entity or or a country or, or what do you say? He is in charge. Not only is he in charge, he is in control that the the events of human history occur under his decree, by his permission and by his will, and nothing happens outside of his control or decree because he is sovereign. Daniel chapter four, verse three. And and by the way, this is the words of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan, the king of Babylon. And look what a pagan says about the God of Daniel. He says, how great are his miracles, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now this is the emperor, if you will, of the Babylonian empire. This is a guy who knows something about authority. When the, when the emperor Nebuchadnezzar speaks people jump what he says goes and that is not, that's the end of the conversation he's a king but what he says here is that the the kingdom of Daniel's God or the kingdom of the most high God is a kingdom that is eternal and that his dominion is from generation to generation he is he is the ruler over all. Daniel chapter 6 verse 26 again Nebuchadnezzar he is the living God, He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and His dominion has no end. So not only is He eternal in terms of long-lasting or, or perpetually existing, but He has the authority to rule, the power and the position to rule, to dictate, to control, because He is sovereign. Open your Bibles to Psalm 93. I couldn't fit it all on the handout, but Psalm 93 Let's look at these five verses. Psalm Psalm chapter 93. Psalm 93. Psalm 93 begins, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be uh, shaken. Your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. The floods have lifted up, Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves, greater than the roar of a huge torrent. The mighty breakers on the sea, but the Lord on high is majestic. And look what verse 5 says. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness adorned your house for all the days to come. How does our psalmist move from the concept of the Lord reigns he is majestic. He is, a, he is more authoritative than, than rushing and roaring waters. He is on high and he is majestic. And then he says, your testimonies are completely reliable. You see? You see how his word is directly dependent on his sovereignty, his authority, his rule. Right? All of these psalms in, chapter, uh, in the 90s and up through the early 100s are a reflection of the rule and reign of God and of His kings. I would encourage you to read through them at your convenience, but it is really astonishing the way it talks about how our God reigns. He is king. His authority is absolute. He has no, no, no challenger, no opposition. He alone is sovereign. Not only is He sovereign, point three, He is true. He is truth in himself, right? The reason his word is authoritative is because he is fundamentally and essentially true. There is no falsehood. There is no lying in him. Everything he says is, uh, uh, reflects the essence of his being, and he is truth in himself. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine says, Furthermore, the Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not man who changes his mind. Now this, this verse is in the context of Samuel's rejection of Saul as king. Samuel just told, told Saul that the kingdom of Israel was going to be taken away from him. That was the word of God through his prophet Samuel. And this is, what he, this is how he justifies it. That the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind. That he is not a man who changes his mind. He does not lie. He is truth. Everything He said is, says is true. Jeremiah uh, chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the eternal King. The earth quakes at His wrath, and the nations can endure His fury. You see the confession? The Lord is truth in Himself. He speaks, the New Testament, Jesus says, we speak out of our heart. And if that's true, what's in God's heart is truth and beauty. No hint of falsehood, no hint of deception, no hint of lies or cheating or any of that. He is essentially true in His being, and so therefore what He says is true from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, always true, because He is always true. Second Samuel seven twenty eight, Lord God, You are God, Your words are true, and You have promised this good thing to Your servant. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the promise of David, the Davidic covenants. And God said, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. And your son will reign on, your, on the throne before me forever. And David says, yes, Lord God, your words are true. Your promises are, are that you have promised this good thing. In other words, what God says he will do. He keeps his promises. That's part of being true. He doesn't renege. He doesn't go back. He doesn't say, oh, I'll do that. Oh, I messed up. I didn't mean that. Exactly what he says is exactly what he will do because he is true. That's why his word has binding authority. There is no falsehood in it. There is no error in it. There is no deception in it. It will not lead you astray. It is true. Therefore, it is reliable. And lastly, He is good. Not only is He eternal, not only is He sovereign, not only is He true, but He is fundamentally good. He is good. That means that when He speaks and when He commands... His desire is for, Romans 8, 28, our good. He, wants our, he is for our blessing and not our harm. He's not out to ch- keep us from enjoying pleasures or to keep us from having fun. Or, he wants us to be fulfilled the way He designed us to be fulfilled. To, be, to experience the flourishing of human ex- uh, experience under His divine goodness. And so therefore, when He instructs us on how to live... His instructions, Paul says, are not burdensome because He is good. Psalm 119.68 You are good and you do what is good. Therefore, teach me your statutes. Psalm 25 The Lord is good and upright, therefore He shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep His covenant and decrees. Look at that. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. That's very common to hear people speak of, well, I mean, the God of the Bible, He just He just wants to restrict our pleasures. He doesn't want us to enjoy, have any enjoyments. He doesn't want us to have any happiness. Or, I mean, He's just a, a fuddy-duddy, and He's just trying to take the fun out of everything. That's not true. He is good, and He is for our good. You see, this this was the first temptation, wasn't it? Think back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. When he said, um, Eve, what, what has the Lord said? She said, oh, we can't eat it, eat it or touch it lest we die. And then she said, has he really said? you remember? Has he really said? He says, no, no, the Lord knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The implication here, God is holding out on you. God has this good fruit. It's good for eating. It's beneficial. It'll make you know good and evil, and God's withholding it, so therefore He's bad. So Satan, the, the, the serpent, sowed the deception of doubt in Eve's heart about God's goodness. Oh, God's withholding something that's good. Even though he'd given them all the other trees of the garden to eat of. They had everything they could ever want. Oh, but God is withholding, you see. The problem with Eve is that she didn't trust in God's goodness. At least one of them, not all of them, but at least one of them is. And so you can see that the reason the scriptures have authority today is because of who God is, because it reflects His being. His His word, in effect, stands in place of His presence. He rules and governs by His word, because it is a reflection of His being. <clears throat> Does any questions or any thoughts on any of that that we've talked about before we go to the next point? Mhm. Right. Yeah, so what do we do with the passages in the Old Testament that talk about God relenting or changing his mind? Right, for example, in Genesis chapter 6 when he says, "Oh, I wish I would have never made man." Or for example, when he's in Exodus 32 when he says, "Oh, I'm going to wipe them all out." They're down at the foot of the mountain sacrificing to the calf and Moses intercedes. Right. I would say that those are anthropopathism. That's a big word that means that Moses is describing God in terms that Moses understood. Does that make sense? It's a reflection of human emotions and a human perspective onto the eternal God. Remember, God is fundamentally more than we could ever hope to understand. Now, I've been this semester I've been reading and been reflecting on how good of theologians the biblical authors actually were. And I think they were better theologians than we sometimes give them credit for, especially in their reflection on scriptures that came before. So Moses wasn't an idiot, so to speak. Right? He knew what he was doing. And it, Moses, again, over in Numbers, will write that God doesn't change his mind. So we have these, even by the same, out of the mouth of the same author, these apparent contradictions. But what we understand is that in the context of the narrative, in the progression of the narrative, Moses is describing God in terms that humans can understand and rather than giving us declarative uh, definitions of God as he is in his being. Is that, is that fair? It's a good question. Anthropopathism, anthro means human and and popathic means emotion, right? In the same way that when we say anthropomorphic, when we say God has an arm or a hand, God doesn't have an arm or a hand, right? So it's an anthropomorphic language to say that God has a hand or an arm the way we can understand it. So the same thing with emotions, anthropopathism is reflecting onto God human emotions, right? Any other questions? That's a good question. All right, so let's look at a couple of passages in Scripture where the scriptural authority, the authority of the Word of God is reflected. You guys know Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, it was uh, God In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and water covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the water. And then verse one, 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. By the very Word of God, the creation came into existence, right? And God didn't uh, like like give a little point or like use a hammer or just give a little, you know, bump of the hip or a little, you know, kick. I mean, he spoke and it was. Right? That's authority. At the very mention of his word, the created masses responded, right? Because it's his authority. Let there be light and there was light. We see this again in John 11, verse 43. That's the story of Lazarus, right? He's standing there with Mary and Martha. They're talking about the resurrection. And he's, and when he, he turns to the tomb and he says, he, after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do? He came out. Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was wrapped in, a, in, you know, in, in the burial garments. And they removed the door and, and Lazarus walked out. Because Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Is it possible that if Jesus would have just said, come out, more of those tombs might have opened that day? I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating. right? But he was very specific. He said, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus came out. Even the dead obeyed the word of Messiah. Because that was his word. Go with me to Psalm chapter 29. Again, a passage I couldn't fit on the handout, but... Psalm 29. Psalm 29, let's pick this up in verse uh, 3. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syria like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. And all His temple all cry glory. The voice of the Lord. The command of the Lord. The decree of the Lord. It does all these things. It thunders. It breaks the cedars. It, it causes Lebanon to skip. Right? These are poetic images that challenge our minds, but they clearly demonstrate that when God speaks, creation responds. Right? He even speaks or he commands, and the deer gives birth. Right? Birth is a process, even in the animal kingdom, that is, I mean, you can't predict, right? But when God speaks, the deer gives birth. Because he is in control and he commands and creation obeys. This is the idea here. Look at uh, Amos chapter 1. The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. You can just see here the idea of roaring, right? The idea of when a lion roars, everything else gets quiet, doesn't it? If you've ever heard a lion roar, but we've all seen it on TV. Right? When a lion roars, the majesty, the authority, the volume, the command that goes along with that, and the rest of the animals stop what they're doing, don't they? And Amos 1 says, The Lord roars, and it says, Even it says, the summit of Carmel withers at the authority and the obligation and the demand of God's word. Okay. So just a few passages in Scripture that help us to visualize what we're talking about when we talk about the authority of God's Word. And, and again, these passages are, are, you know, we could say, well, I mean, these were vocal words, right? God said, let there be light. And this is, I mean, this is a book, right? I'm, I can't hear the voice of God audibly when I read this book, right? But as we talked about, because this book is inspired by God, because it is sourced out of the mind of God, it is His very Word. Even though it is the words of human authors, it is still His very Word. That's part of the concursus or the beauty of inspiration. <clears throat> any questions about any of those passages that we talked about? So let's look at a, a couple of passages that help us think about how we might respond to the, to the authority of God's Word. If God's Word has authority, if He speaks and the creation responds, then how should you and I respond when we are confronted with the authority of God's Word? Go over to 2 Kings. This is maybe one of my favorite stories in the book of Kings. It's the story of a king by the name of Josiah. Josiah is in the southern kingdom. He was a mostly good king. He began to uh, reign when he was a pretty young guy, about eight years old. He sets about a plan of restoration and rebuilding. They repair the temple. And in the process of repairing the temple, they find the book of the law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, as you and I would know it. And so we read in Second uh, Kings chapter 22, verse 8, the high priest, Tokiah told the court secretary, Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple, and they gave the book to Shaphan to read it. Then the court secretary, Shaphan, went to the king and reported, your servants have emptied out the silver that was found in the temple and have given it to those doing the work, those who oversee the Lord's temple. Verse 10, then the court secretary Shaphan told the king, the priest Tokiah has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. As the story goes on, he goes on to say, What does this mean? They come and they go and search out a prophet of God, a, a prophetess by the name of Huldah, and she helps them understand what this word means. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But when the king was confronted with God's word, right, why did he cry? Why did he mourn? Why did he tear his clothes? What do you think? Why did Josiah respond this way? to the reading of the book of Deuteronomy. What do you think? Was he just having a bad day? Maybe he had some food that didn't agree with him? No. The reason he responded this way is because he was convicted. He was cut to the heart over the sin of his people. He realized how they had failed to keep God's covenant. And how weighty the consequences would be. Because Deuteronomy spells those out in very clear terms. So he trembled over his own sin. And over the judgment that was due his people. And he tore his clothes in lament and in confession. It goes on to say in this passage that he would be rewarded for having a sensitive heart. A soft heart toward God and toward his word. So one way we can respond to the word of God is to... Confess to confront our sin, to acknowledge our sin and what it is before the one true and living God. The word of God convicts, his authority convicts us of our sin. That's how we should respond. It's not the only way, we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but at least one way. When we are when we read the word of God, are we cut to the heart? Do we fall on our knees and lament over our sin, over having offended a holy and just God? When you sit down to read the book of Deuteronomy, do you tear your clothes and mourn? I have it recently. Why is that? We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Go over to the book of Nehemiah with me. Nehemiah chapter 8. So by the time Nehemiah steps on the scene, the the, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah have been released from exile. They've returned to the land. They've rebuilt the temple. They're rebuilding the walls. In verse 8, it actually begins back in the end of verse 7, but he says, When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate, and they asked the scribe, Ezra, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given out Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men and all who would listen with understanding. And while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it. From daybreak until noon. You doing the math there? Daybreak until noon, that's about six hours. For six hours, Ezra stood and read the word of the law before the men, the women, and those who couldn't understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So There's another response, right, to listen attentively. Skipping the names, picking it up in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. And as he opened it, all the people did what? Stood up. Why? Because this was the Word of God. We'll talk more about that in just a minute and why we do what we do here in terms of worship. But they stood up in recognition that this was the Word of God. Ezra, verse 6, blessed the Lord the great God with their hands uplifted and the people said, Amen. And then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Going on, skipping the names. It says in verse 7 that the Levites and all those with them explained the law to the people. That they stood in their places. They read out the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people can understand what was read. That's exposition. Verse 9, Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people were weeping, watch this, as they heard the words of the law. Moses, Ezra was standing up there reading the law. The the Levites and the ministers were there among the congregation explaining and giving the meaning. And what were the people doing? Weeping. Why? Same reason Josiah was weeping, because this is the word of God. This is who he is. This is who we are. Verse 10 continues, then he said to them, Go. Eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord God. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people and said, Be still, since today is holy. Do not grieve. And then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration because why were they celebrating? Because they had understood the words that were explained to them. Here's another response they celebrated, they were encouraged, they had strength in the joy of the Lord. They were renewed in their faith in His promises. So the Levites say, no, don't mourn. Celebrate God's goodness. Rejoice in His promises. Take faith. This passage, Nehemiah 8, I think, lays out the foundation for how I understand what we do on Sunday mornings. Okay, And that's why I put on here the authority of Scripture and the worship of the church, specifically the worship of this church, Right? Because in the book of Nehemiah, and specifically in this chapter, I think the pattern we see here is a pattern of proclamation and response. This is the biblical pattern of worship. Proclamation and response. That that God speaks through His Word, and the people respond in worship. That is the biblical pattern for worship. I want you to think for just a moment about how we order our, our services here. Our services begin with a call to worship. The Word of God being read. And then we respond, don't we? Through a prayer of adoration, through the song singing, and through giving of offerings. Then we have the sermon scripture, read, proclamation, the Word of God, read. And we have the children's sermon, and we have our main sermon, our adult sermon. And then we respond with a song, with a prayer of confession. Then we have a sending scripture, a proclamation of God's Word. And we close with the response of the doxology. So the way our our worship is structured here is a reflection of what we believe about the authority of God's Word. That the primary initiative and first place of honor belongs to the Word of God. And that we as His people stand and respond corporately together through singing and through prayer and through giving and through the table and through various other means. So our worship service is really several cycles of proclamation and response how it's structured, at least that's how it works in my mind. That's a reflection of what we see here in the Bible, a reflection of what we believe about the Word of God. We're not here to have a good time and share, share stories about our week, so we should do those things, and those are fun. But we're here to hear the Word of the Lord and respond appropriately. And so, yeah, that, that, that response may, be, may mean that you need to come down here and confess your sins on your knees before God and mourn and wail and weep. Over the sin you've been living in. Maybe it means you need to be encouraged. Take, take faith. Take joy in God's promise. And have some hope. Maybe it need, means that His word comforts you. And you're, and then you have peace. And where you previously had anxieties. I don't know what it is for you. But the idea here. When we gather. Is to respond meaningfully. To what God has said. And if you're not doing that. Then you're not worshipping. You're going through the motions. Any thoughts about any of that? I'm looking at the time. I don't think we're going to get through the back page, so save that till next week. We can save that for part two. We'll talk more about the the role of the spirit. In relation to the word, particularly as it relates to his inner witness, but I think we'll save that for next week because we only have a few moments left. But what are the practical implications for you as we think about the authority of God's word? I mean, most of us carry the Bible on our phones. I've got a dozen of these at home in various sizes and translations, right? We have the word of God all around us. What what does a conviction about the authority of God's Word, what does that mean for you as you go throughout your week, as you gather here with the saints? What do you think? Mm -hmm. Repentance, uh, sorrow, sorrowful repentance. Yeah. Hits me and I'm like, uh, yeah. There. there it is. Yep. It's right there. It's been the Bible the whole time. Yep. Like it yep. The sad reality is that we have more access to the Word of God today than any generation of believers has ever had in the history of the church. And yet, at the same time, we are the most biblically illiterate and uninformed people, maybe, that have ever existed in the history of the church. Yeah. I didn't been mm-hmm. the, uh, in the temple, in the temple mm-hmm. so they're like oh look, there it is we don't, don't have that excuse yeah. right so what are our excuses when we go two or three days without picking up the word of God oh don't have the time I'll do it tomorrow I don't think Josiah would accept those excuses do you? Right? Now that doesn't mean that every time I pick the Bible up, it's just going to be this joyous and exciting and this overabundant kind of emotional experience. Right? Some days it's hard. Some days you're like, "I'm exhausted. I've got twenty things on my plate, and I don't feel like reading the Bible today." Right? That's okay too. It's okay to be there. You should just tell the Lord that He already knows anyway, and you still pick your Bible up and read it. That's part of the discipline, right? So sometimes, you know, we have to eat our vegetables. You know, sometimes eating your vegetables is not fun. You want to eat your dessert, but sometimes you still got to eat your vegetables, right? You guys make your kids eat their vegetables. Try. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the same way it is for adult Christians, isn't it? Right. We know that the we know that this word is good and nourishing for for spiritual life, and yet we neglect it for reasons that are, in the grand scheme of things, mostly pale in comparison. But yeah, absolutely. And there may there may be a day that comes when we will not have access to God's word. Will there? They may outlie, outlaw the book, or burn them, or take them away, or what have you. I hope not, but that could that is possible. It has happened at various occasions throughout church history. What will we do then? Do we have the word hidden in our heart? Have we memorized? Have we digested? Have we have we given ourselves to the to to, to the scriptures in a way that they're written on our hearts? It's also part of our interaction with the Word of God. Writing them on our hearts and being, um, having our lives being dictated and controlled by them from, from the internal perspective. What else? Any other thoughts you have about what we've talked about this evening? Mm-hmm. So to say, you know, that yeah. Support, support savings, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and I think there is, there is on, on how it might work Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Isaiah says, uh, in, in Isaiah, the Lord says, I send my word out. It will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose for which i have sent it. Right? We are not responsible, like Russell said, for the effectiveness of the word of God. Now, we can be effective in our delivery of it and our sharing of it and our explanation of it. But ultimately, we are not responsible for how others respond to the word. This is the same thing that occurs on Sunday. You know, pastors get up here and we we sing and we read and we do everything we're supposed to do, but we're not responsible for your response. Now, we are responsible for being effective in our study and in our preparation and in our delivery, right? But ultimately, how you respond to the Word of God is between you and the Lord. Have you ever left a service like, man, I just really didn't get much out of that service today. I don't know what's going on with that pastor or those worship guys. I really just didn't get much out of it. Maybe the problem was with you and not with the worship leader or the pastor's. Have you prepared your heart or your soul to come and be fed by the Word of God, or do you come hungry and ready and anticipating what He might say and how what He might ask of us? So sometimes we need to think about when we gather. We need to think about our own selves and our own responsibility for how we respond. Is that fair? Any other thoughts? All right. Well, well, we'll give you five minutes uh, back this evening. Hang on to your handouts. I'll hang, I've got a few more I'll hang on to for next week, but we'll do the back of it next week. We talk about the role of the Spirit and how He, he uses the Word and how He testifies to its truth in our lives. So we'll talk more about that uh, next week. But um, with that being said, thank you all for coming this evening. And uh, Pastor Craig, can I ask you to close us in order of prayer?